todo el mundo. Was really... 1881. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today, my guest and co-host is Shane Bitterling. He wrote the short story, Daydream Bereaver, in Rock and Roll Nightmares, Along Comes Scary, the 1960s edition. He's also the author of an illustrated book for monster kids of all ages, The Year Without Halloween. Shane is a screenwriter whose credits include Puppet Master 10, Axis Rising, Ouija's, and a segment in 13 Slays Till Christmas. Welcome, Shane. Well, hello. It's good to have you here. Uh, it's good to be asked to be anywhere, especially <laughs> by you. Uh, thanks. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I guess let's tell the listeners a little bit about your story in the Rock and Roll Nightmare 60s edition. Daydream Bereaver. Um, yeah, I was excited uh, to do that. Um, um, I was kind of a last minute addition, I think, but uh, I had a lot of fun writing that thing. And I just um, happened to be listening to the monkeys as I always do kind of around here. Um, they're, they're my Beatles and um, uh, listening to the ventures, of course. And I'm very, again, very sorry about your, your father. He was Thank always you. the soundtrack of my dad's El Camino and and just my childhood but I've been listening to him for so many years and so I was doing that and then you would ask me to do this and I'm like oh well that just kind of fits even though the story doesn't really fit either one but it's um you know it's a beach blanket type movie um where it's set and um you know a super fandom and uh girl goes to meet the band that she's just in, enamored with and uh, has a little outside competition from some uh, another woman who comes from the sea. How did you come up with the title? Because that's so clever. Daydream Bereaver. I love it. Well, I, I had a couple other titles that I was, that I think were more appropriate to the story, but I was just listening to the monkeys and, you know, and I love uh, Daydream Believer and everything and I was like yeah I'm just gonna go with that and um and it kind of had the sort of the the bereaver had the beehive kind of theme so I just kind of stuck it in there but uh, um it wasn't uh nixed by the editor so I thought maybe it's okay. <laughs> that's all <right. laughs> Well, I know you're. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for a pun title. And, oh God, me and too. It's kind of yeah. fit. And I, it was. Um, uh, I went kind of more with the the fun route rather than just straight horror with it. So I just thought it fit. You mm -hmm. like punk too, don't you? I mean, who are some of your favorite bands, and and what's the best or maybe mo most memorable concert you'd ever attended? Well, one of the one of my favorite bands is one of everybody's favorite bands. It's not just a, a t-shirt logo anymore, but 
the Ramones have, has always been there. Um, I just was completely enamored with them. I've, I've seen them many times over the years and it was one of the best shows I ever went to was, well, every one of their shows, but one of the best and most odd was I was at their final show. Oh. Um, when I first moved out here, that was what, 96 or 97. So that's in LA? Just, that was in LA and it was um, the Key Club, which has been many other things since then. Um, I'm not even sure if the building's still there anymore, but um, yeah, they had a lot of special guests. They had a lot of everything. They just always played faster, faster, faster over the years. So those two and a half minute songs were like a minute long, <laughs> but it just ended and there was no anything. They just kind of ended the show, walked off on stage and some of the, the guests were still standing on stage. Kind of, Is that it? Is that it? And that was it. Um, legend has it that they never said goodbye to each other. No, nothing. It was just, it was an, it was an incredible show, but also just really kind of bizarre and very sad in the long run because, you know, Johnny died not long after that, uh, or sorry, Joey. And then um, from, uh, I worked in uh, Bel Air for a while uh, up in this kind of exclusive little thing. And, and Johnny used to go up there all the time to pick up his mail. And I would talk to him quite a bit. So, I mean, it was just, he really didn't want to talk to me at all about anything um, or anybody he didn't want to talk to, but he was a big horror fan, a classic horror fan. And he was always picking up posters and I could tell by his packages that they were like posters for something. So I commented on that and that's how we started talking all the time. So he'd come in and show me the, the booty that he just picked up from the post office. So oh, it was really cool. Good. We never, we never talked about music or anything else. It was just always classic monsters, which was the coolest. Wow. That is but, pretty yeah. neat to have that connection. Yeah. This someone that you're a fan of yeah that that place which i mean we'll kind of get in a little bit later again um it was really a mecca for every musician like legendary musician that everybody has ever loved you know and they were just constantly coming in and out of my store all the time and most of them didn't want to talk about music at all or their music um, which was kind of cool because they just, you got to know the people, you know, you talked about just life. Yeah. On a different level. Things, uh, people that would just come in and talk about their day, which was amazing. So it was, I mean, even though I was really fanning out over. <laughs> How long were you there? Um, uh, I was there for a few years, like seven or eight years off and on. I left and came back and everything but um but you know tom jones always brings you back he, <laughs> he was one of the guys that came up there all day he was just he was the the nicest funniest guy and was a big horror fan like his favorite movie was um from dust dawn really you know when he couldn't find it was a rent it was a movie rental place a video store and when he couldn't find anything to rent it would always go back to from dust till dawn huh. so, well you can't go really, wrong nope um, so I, I have read some of your stories in other horror anthologies, which is why I asked you to write Rock and Roll Nightmares, um, because I love them. I love Hell Comes to Hollywood, the story that you had in there and the 18 Wheels of Horror. Um, so, but we know that you're mainly a screenwriter. So can you talk a little bit about um, writing fiction versus a screenplay? Like, which do you prefer? Um, I guess they both scratch different kinds of creative itches. They do. Um, I really, I, I love doing fiction and I don't do it as much just because, you know, you spend a lot of time on it and there's no pay or anything, but on the upside, um, I mean, that's originally really kind of what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, I wanted to be Peter Straub or Stephen King or Jack Ketchum or something, but I, I knew a lot of those guys those writers and it's like the struggle i'm like oh boy 
So it's just kind of the satisfaction of doing it. But but I'd love doing fiction because there's no limits. There's no budget. There's no producer. There is an editor, and uh, but no actors and everything. And I've as screenplays, I've written uh, probably more crap than this world ever needs. And it's uh, my original screenplays. I've sold a few. I've optioned a few, but. I'm usually work for hire and it's just, it's stuff that I wouldn't normally write on my own. And then when you see the final thing, it's like, you know, the actors are horrible. The producer has dumb notes. The director has dumb notes. Craft service has dumb notes. Everybody has (laughs) notes or something. And with fiction, you just don't have any of that. And the editor, uh, you were a great editor. Um, yeah, some editors are better than than others, and um, really, sometimes all they do is a spell check. But, right. You know, it's it's it for me. It's I mean, I I think every writer has an ego, but for me, it's always what makes the best project or the best story or the best screenplay, and not everybody always has that in mind um, when they're doing a movie. It's always about their just strictly their ego, but with fiction, it's really, people are trying to get the best out of you. So notes are sometimes hard or difficult, but they're, it makes for a better story. So I really do love that aspect of fiction. Um, Well, have you done some movies that your name's not even on that you just got paid for and? (laughs) A whole lot. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) A whole lot of them, yeah. Uh, a bunch yeah and even some of the ones with my name on them I kind of regret that but oh no well I I know one thing you don't regret at all is your wonderful uh illustrated book the year without Halloween so yeah I love that talk about that a little bit more it's such a fun idea I'm really really proud of that because of all the things that I've written um even with the story I did for you in uh along comes scary i i don't know why but they always kind of end up naughty and (laughs) i don't intend that when i start and the one uh in hell comes to hollywood was really naughty but uh i i that's not really where i intend to go but that's somehow they always end up that way and that's not totally me um the 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 children's book was totally me that was me and uh a lot of people think that the illustration is supposed to be me and it's not supposed to be me it just kind of ended up that way you know nerds are always kind of pudgy with glasses and (laughs) there's kind of that archetype well yeah it's just kind of the default nerd look um but i i had the idea uh uh, when because i wanted to write family movies and stuff i still do um but I had the idea kind of during the, the pandemic and I was just sitting on the back porch and I was like, oh man, what if they cancel Halloween? And I just had a couple little verses going through my head and jotted them down. Then a few more came and a few more and over a few days, I, I'm like, I think this is a book. And I just started figuring out how to do that. And I didn't, I wanted it out by Halloween that year. And the, I, I found an artist that kind of hashed it all out, figured it all out. And we're on a kind of a tight schedule to get it out there. And I knew I couldn't get it to a publisher or anything that would take forever. Um, so I just did it myself. And everybody said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Can't do this, can't do that. Which means that you really should do it. And it just, uh, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. And the day that I announced it, the book on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that, that stuff. Um, the, the, the day after that, they canceled Halloween. So wow. <laughs> you know, kind of across the country, they canceled Halloween. I'm like, well, that was my fear. And it, knowing then that it was going to be a reality. So that it was really kind of a race to get it out. It did really well. And I just, I, people that know me, like really know me kind of knew that that was, kind of something that I would do and um 
people that kind of, I guess, think know you were shocked that it was an actual children's book and not something else. You know, it wasn't sarcastic. It wasn't all these things. It was just kind of these sweet, well, it was really kind of nostalgia based about traditions and things like that. And um, I mean, people were really caught into it. And some of the best responses were from uh, mothers whose kids don't like to read or things like that, uh, or have trouble reading. And this really kind of opened them up because they didn't have a lot of sort of spooky, safe spooky books that, that caught their interest. It was always something at school. So that was really nice. But then it was all of the, the middle-aged bearded men sending me private messages like I didn't know I was going to cry this hard why I read this thing to my kid like I just cried for an hour <laughs> yeah I mean adults thing. are really so liking the book too yeah they're really liking it they're really liking it so I want to follow it up with something I just I haven't had the time and I the idea just didn't hasn't struck me like it did the last time so yeah I well I mean I think that it's definitely an evergreen kind of book it's not just a Halloween book yeah, yeah, it really is. It's it has uh, a nice message to it, and you know, there's a little bit of uh, consumerism and all that stuff in there. There's there's some stuff in there that um, I think people really like, and it's not just fluff like a lot of children's books are that that kids read over and over and over and over. I'm like, I want them to read this over and over and over and kind of pull it out every year. Yeah. Or so, and I get messages from a lot of people that they do do that. So that's just the greatest thing in the world. That is great. So it's the year without Halloween, and you can get it yeah. on Amazon, right? I mean, it's, you can get it on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Um, well, we've, before we move on to our main show, I have to ask you the perennial question: What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? Well, I'm kind of living it, um, or it's more of a just a rock and roll bad dream. <laughs> you know, it's all of these bands that I grew up with that are still touring or new bands and the prices are so high to go see a band. Anymore. I know they're crazy. It's ridiculous. And th there are so many people coming around, some of them that I've seen over and over, some of them that I haven't seen at all. And, you know, for two people, you know, my wife and I going out, it's, that's like a $500 night, you know, at least. Yeah. And it's just, I, I can't do it. And, and then all of those, those final shows that I went to that were kind of so memorable, it, now they're coming back again and touring again. I'm looking at you, <laughs> yeah. Motley Crue. I was at that final, final ever show. <laughs> yeah. We're never going to do it again. Uh, we hate they're each like other. We boxers going into other. retirement and then they're yeah. back. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, and the, the Who is doing their 30th annual going out of business tour. <laughs> yeah. It's just all these guys, you know, or bands, it's like, oh, just good for them. And people are still interested, but it just, it's like, well, I'm not that interested, but I also can't afford you anymore. Yeah, the prices are really out of control. I mean, yeah. I love, I'm just as happy going to uh, see a local talented band, like with the $10 cover charge, and you yeah. can get right up close to the stage. You know, it's not a big inconvenience and um, yeah. you see some, you can discover some really good music that way. Yeah. And I've been doing that more and more. I don't go to shows like I used to. It seems like I used to go every couple weeks or so uh, to see somebody. Um, but, I, you know, I'm also an old mummy and I, I concerts should be at noon. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? 10 yeah. o'clock doors open oh my god yeah my bedtime <laughs> yeah what about that uh afternoon show but yeah no I, I have discovered a lot of uh smaller bands local bands and there's always a great scene going there because you're not going to hear that you're not going to hear much rock and roll on the new rock and roll on the radio anymore absolutely not at all yeah so you know going out and discovering um some new people it's that's pretty pretty amazing and it makes you feel good because you're supporting, uh, you know. Um, well, we're doing something a little different on this episode. Uh, rather than interviewing a music-related guest, you and I are going to talk about the portrayals of real rock stars in the movies. Um, so there are a lot of them, but we've narrowed it down to six. We're going to be talking about The Runaways, Street Survivors, The True Story of the Leonard Skinner Plane Crash, 
Lords of Chaos, which is about the black metal band Mayhem, The Dirt, based on Motley Crue's autobiography, uh, Love and Mercy, and lastly, Sid and Nancy, which is about Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols and his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen. Yeah. So uh, why don't you take the lead on our first movie that we're going to be Yeah, so The Runaways, uh, that was a movie I really enjoyed obviously based on the runaways one of the greatest punk bands but also one of the greatest female bands around and uh Kristen Stewart was uh, played Joan Jett and Dakota Fanning was Cherie Curry and um it, it, I really like I, and I don't know how true to it all it was or anything else even though it was based on uh curry's book it was what uh yeah neon angel, neon angel. Uh-huh. and i don't know how and that's coming from her side but i don't know but it was a, it was a really entertaining movie and it was joy, uh, and I, i'm interested in the band so i think a lot of these all of these music-based movies um kind of depend on if you if you're interested in the subject or not you know because they all most of them kind of follow uh a certain path uh but this one was really uh i mean they were kind of trailblazing you know in their um in their path and that was uh because of their manager who was kim fowley who was uh played by michael shannon really really well in in the movie uh he was just fantastic so um but yeah, there was just a, there was a lot to like about this one. Um, unlike a lot of uh, movies based on uh, artists and music, and one of them's coming later that we're going to talk about. This one actually had the the actual music uh, from The Runaways. Right. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it's always weird when you have a, a movie based on a band and you don't ever play the band. I know. Yeah, well, well music rights. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about um, concert tickets. Uh, rights to play music is just out of this world and totally out of reach of for a lot of filmmakers but in this case i mean this is not this is like i'd say a mid-budget movie yeah this one actually had a budget um you you can't do these things with uh you know no budget or the the budgets that i work with Uh, (laughs) right you know and i yeah i read a lot of scripts that have um you know music written into the scripts and i'm like good luck good luck good luck good luck (laughs) (laughs) all these needle drops and some movies oh my gosh you know for no reason at all just have you know it was like well that's a million dollars worth of needle drops just in the first 20 minutes yeah i think a lot of people don't realize that but but i i did like uh the choice of uh Floria Sigismondi as the director. I like a woman director kind of telling the story of this small female band and she's a visual artist and it's very beautifully shot and there's some really cool um, composition and just everything, the costumes, the makeup, the hair. It's just really, I feel like it, um, even though the story, it does feel like it's hitting on just the broad strokes and it focuses mostly on Cherie, of course, because it's based on her book and Joan, but uh, the rest of the band, um, Lita Ford and Sandy West, I mean, they barely have any lines. They're like cardboard cutouts in the background, kind of. Right, right. And, you know, and of course, we know as an audience that those people are not uh, just uh, eye candy or, you know, wallpaper in the back. Yeah, they were very strong women. Um, but yeah, it was, it, I mean, it was... Uh, Cherie's story really but uh but it but it was a good it was entertaining um and you you hit on it too uh uh Sigismondi it was directed really well and it it really felt like the period you know all of the actors everybody just you know that kind of it just it really fit uh, whereas a lot of times it just it's hard to emulate that uh that yeah, I feel like definitely it, it takes you back in time. I mean, I was I was alive, but way too young to go to Rodney's English Disco or some of those places on yeah. the strip back then. But I did actually get to meet. Um, I got to know Kim Fowley a little bit toward the end of his life. I met him yeah. at a 
New Year's Eve party at uh, Joe Bashara, the film composer's uh -huh. house. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he knew my dad. He liked the ventures. And so we started talking and I went to, you know, one of his last birthday parties. But I mean, he was just such a really over the top character. You know, he was in his 70s then and his hair was dyed green and he had like a dominatrix on his arm. And, you know, <laughs> those people are just larger than life. And I thought they were very well portrayed in the film. Yeah, I thought so, too, because I've read a lot about Kim Fowley and um you you'd see him and he, he was sort of uh i mean he was very important in the music world but by the time i was kind of into all of this he was really just kind of a a george hamilton of the music like he was just sort of a, <laughs> yeah. he was just kind of always there at an event or or uh -huh. doing something and yeah so i was just reading up about him and wasn't it um after he passed, was it Girls and Corpses magazine? Oh yeah, that was Post, really yeah. Yeah, crazy. posted a there were a picture of him his corpse with some half naked women or whatever. Oh, that that was. is the name of the magazine. Is <laughs> it right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. wild. And it was supposedly by his request. And, and <laughs> I wouldn't who, doubt who it. Knows? I wouldn't put yeah. it past him, but yeah, that was really odd. Send yeah, off, I mean, but kind of fitting movie, also. Yeah. Really. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go from the beautiful glam gals to the uh, Southern rockers, uh, Leonard Skinner, um, Street Survivors, the real story of the Leonard Skinner plane crash is an independent and lower budget film. And it's based yeah. on the recollections of the band's drummer, Artemis Pyle. And he wasn't even a founding member, but he's kind of taken over the legacy of Leonard Skinner now, I guess, because he's just been around longer than anybody else. Um, and Jared yeah, he's Cohen, the one. The, he's the survivor <laughs> right. I mean, literally he's survivor. no he is um you know i mean it's it's pretty it is an amazing story um now jared cohen is the writer director and the movie came out in 2020 and um i don't recall all the details but i know the release was delayed due to some lawsuit issues and stuff legal battles yeah. but it did finally come out um it's very you know it's a low budget film but pretty ambitious given the material. I mean, there's a lot of actors in it, a lot of extras. There's concert scenes, of course, the plane crash scene. Um, Ian Schultes plays Artemis, and it's his first starring role. Um, he's been in a, only two other things. Um, but he basically has to go through hell recreating what happened when the um, band's plane crashed in 1977 and killing its um, founder and superstar lead singer Ronnie Van Zant and the guitarist Steve Gaines and um, backup singer Steve's sister Cassie Gaines and a couple of other people but there were a few survivors and um, I think you know it is of course told from Artemis's point of view but I don't really you know which I've is fine. I don't mind a little artistic license. But in this case, I think he really overstates his heroism. Yeah. Um, he wasn't the only person who went looking for help. There were two other survivors who also went with him. Um, and I also felt like Ronnie um, was portrayed in a very one dimensional way as just this tyrant, you know, and I, I don't know, I thought there were just too many broad strokes in that one. What did you think of it? I I, I wasn't a fan of this. This was sort of like the passion of Artemis Pyle. <laughs> yeah, it, right. it, it sort of reminded me of Lone Survivor, you know, where it's just somebody going through all of this. It's like, how much hell can you bring on top of somebody? I just, I didn't really know exactly what the point was because at, in the end, there's no, nothing really learned. It's just sort of reenactments and recreations. And then occasionally you get, actually him in there talking about it yeah that was kind of an odd like including the real artemis pile popping in every once in a while as a talking yeah. head to say and this is you know what was happening i think that could have been told through the narrative yeah i just uh i mean it it was it was ambitious for sure for for the whatever the budget was which i i don't think was much but again no no leonard skinner music to be found in there Oh, there was um, though. There was one song. I think was it was. Yeah, I think they played. I'm trying. I didn't write it down when I watched it, but I think it was three steps. 
They did have one concert. I, I recognized one of the songs as a Leonard Skinner song. Okay, well, I totally missed that, but it wasn't really off the cuff, but it just felt like somebody's internal monologue on what was going on. It just, I don't know, it didn't really feel real and it didn't really give, again, it was from the, the, the lone survivor's point of view, but like just all of the detail, I don't, didn't really need it, but it was just all detail of the wreck. And there wasn't really, I don't know, it was kind of like self-hero worship and everything. And I was like, oh, I mean, I guess, the, you know, the survivor is the one who uh, changes history or creates history or however you say that. But it, I just didn't see the point really of the whole thing. Yeah, I felt it was too exploitive. It wasn't really. Yeah, yeah like it, you said, it was just all about the plane crash, which you can make an interesting movie about a plane crash. Like yeah, live, and that's been done know, before. The, yeah, sure. Those, uh, you know, you could have done it that way, but I don't know. It just was too, um, it, just like it, sketched out. Yeah, and it just felt like uh, I don't know, plane crash exploitation or something. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and also, um, Artemis Pyle, he was not shot by the farmer that whose house he stumbled upon. He kind of came up with that story a few years later because he never said anything about, right. you know, so that's all kind of made up. Right. And I don't know, I, I, I didn't really like it too much but yeah, I, do. I, I, I always wasn't. you know any independent filmmaker who takes on an ambitious project my hat's off to them but um there's a documentary actually a 2018 documentary called if i leave here tomorrow and it's directed by um stephen kajak who's done yeah. a lot of music documentaries and narrative music films and it's much better and i feel like it's every bit as chilling in terms of the plane crash um portion okay i saw that one as well and i i I liked it much more because it just it was sort of an overall thing not just from one person's perspective and i i was kind of a unreliable narrator right there. definitely but, but but like like you said hats off because it, it is very ambitious they had a lot of there's a lot of actors in this thing a lot of people um you know they, they tried it just i think it was a swing and a miss this is a uh, Lords of Chaos. Yes. Which came out in 2018. I actually thought it was only like a couple of years ago, but that's where time has gone. Well, pandemic has changed everyone's yeah. time space continuum. What year is this? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a really interesting one. It's um, kind of the, the story, inception, and growth and demise of uh, 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 the first black metal Norwegian black metal band, Mayhem, uh, and it was directed by uh, I'm going to say his name wrong because <laughs> I'm half a hillbilly, but uh, it's Jonas Ackerland. I think Ackerland? you're probably close, yep. okay. if not correct. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> uh, not Jonas, I'm pretty sure of that. But Jonas Ackerland, and um, it's just kind of it's an interesting movie all around. Uh, and there have been documentaries made about this as well. And it's Rory Culkin plays the real person. I was going to say character. His name's Euronymous. And, and this is set in Oslo in the early 90s. And uh, this was the inception of uh, Norwegian black metal. And things kind of escalate over time. Uh, they're creating this whole new genre and uh, another uh, person comes into his life uh, and this guy was uh, played by Emery Cohen who was fantastic in it and uh, his the real person he's playing is uh, Christian Varg Vickerness and this is kind of where the movie faults but to uh, Euronymous all of this is sort of a it's just sort of an act you know he's really not this black satanist cat killing whatever person but varg is really disturbed person and keeps taking this to the next level and they, this is when they start uh burning down the churches in oslo these beautiful gorgeous structures and even eventually another person is is, is murdered 
and it's just sort of the 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 well small rise because it's so very niche but rise and fall and it's very tragic uh what happens at the end of this but um i i really enjoyed this movie uh and it's something that i'm interested in i'm not really a, a black metal or death metal fan but i'm just interested in in this uh thing this culture and and everything else of you know it's it's all kind of goofy stuff that we talk about and play around with but these uh well some of these people took it extremely seriously and with uh you know satan and the um the burning of the church and all this other stuff what i and all the acting is very good and it's also very humorous at times very funny yeah um, really it's a black comedy that's how I yeah it really it. is it really is and it gets very tragic yeah um but oh my gosh it had moments of violence the violence in this movie is so guttural and and hard it turned my stomach at a few times and i you know i can watch cannibal movies at, at, for lunch right yeah well because it's so you get more you get really invested in the characters i feel very like, much so. you know and um the one who's not around for too long is um pele olin uh named yeah. dead that was his stage name dead and he yeah. really did die because he killed himself and he's played really well by uh jack kilmer who's val kilmer's son and um I thought that was a really interesting story how they showed his suicide in the beginning and um, Euronymous's sort of reaction to it and what happened. I mean, there's an infamous album cover that is a photo of the actual young man who blew his head off. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the movie, it kind of shows you, okay, this is what really happened. I kind of like the, the twists and turns in the plot that you really don't see coming that are all the more right. I think arresting yeah. because it's real life. Yeah, it's real life. And it's, it's it reminded me of I'm gonna misquote him, but Alfred Hitchcock said something about you know how truly difficult it is to kill a man. And that was really how the violence was played in this. It was, it was either very sudden and abrupt and very real, or towards the end, it's just so long extended and brutal you know we we kind of see uh people get shot in movies and they're dead or they get punched and then they're supposedly dead this thing is just it's so gut-wrenching yeah it's like you know, it's in real time i mean um, yeah exactly we see so many movies where someone is strangled and you know within 10 seconds they're dead but in real life it takes two and a half to three minutes to actually kill someone through strangulation right. in this case right. it's a stabbing but and this yeah. one was just and and his admittance really in the end was you know like basically i'm just i was just playing i was just playing you know yeah it's another person took this completely real but it um the one I, I really i really enjoyed the movie uh it's it's completely entertaining i mean don't focus on the violence but it's it's absolutely entertaining and kind of engrossing and extremely well made yeah i've seen it like three or four times now i don't usually watch movies multiple times because i have so many new movies that i have right. to watch i don't have right. time but but no this movie is one that i keep coming back to and i really feel like rory culkin um you know he gave an oscar worthy performance but of he course was this isn't the kind of movie that he would even be nominated for but he's really really incredible in this he's, movie he's absolutely incredible and i and i really liked emory cohen he just had that well, that's where I think the movie kind of uh, was lacking in the in the Varg uh, character or characterization. Mm -hmm. We didn't really get a lot of history on how disturbed this person really was, and and thinking that he found finally found his his gang to be in and was accepted by these people, but those people were kind of fake and bogus uh, as they keep saying in the in the movie you know, right he was a poser and but you you get a couple glimpses of like he has a nazi flag hanging in his thing but you're just so that immediately you know, it's like oh he's disturbed but there there was a lot more to it than that because clearly he had a uh, a life that was not lacking um 
he looked like he had some some uh, money. Uh, it looked like he had things, but probably just not the acceptance or the the love. We never saw the parents or heard from the parents, but right. I think some of that context was needed for that character, and also kind of the the context of the state of the church at that time and being oppressive or what he kept seeing as being oppressive, but we never actually saw that in the movie uh, because just as painful as the violence is watching those beautiful, beautiful churches burn, um, which, I mean, I remember seeing that on the news way back when I'm like, oh my gosh, but yeah, it's history. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but I just, you know, I always love the architecture and the beauty yeah. and the art associated with the churches. And yeah, it's just terrible to watch them burn almost as bad as watching, you know, a person get killed. It's it's just like they they really do also bring home the the violence against um, the so-called establishment too. Right, right. I just I thought a little bit of that was lacking, but you know that was a that was a good movie. Actually, I wanted to watch it again at some point. Um, I, I'm like you. I well, I'll watch movies from 20 years ago a hundred times. <laughs> yeah. But this was a a newer movie that I I do look forward to to watching again. Just it kind of a, it was it was cinema. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Um, now we're going to move on to the dirt. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah, I've seen this one a couple times too, actually. <laughs> uh, it's uh, based on the collective autobiography of Motley Crue. And um, actually, over the years, I started reading that book twice, maybe even three times, but I could never get into it. I guess it was, you know, just the the misogyny was too much for me. They, yeah. they treated women just so poorly and they really used them. And then they kind of laughed about it and really never grew up. I mean, even though this book came out years later, they didn't really ever have any regrets about their behavior back then. But yeah. as a film, <laughs> I love it. You know, I think it's just kind of a rock and roll circus and uh, it's the comedy is gold. Uh, the director, Jeff Tremaine, I think he really captured the 80s of the Sunset Strip because, uh, you know, I grew up there and I, I saw yeah. Motley Crue live back in the day. And I think the film is really spot on and the, the casting is fantastic. Uh, Machine Gun Kelly is great as Tommy Lee. And um, although so is Sebastian Stan, I don't know if you watched um, Pam and Tommy. Not yet. Yeah, yeah, he's great too. So, I mean, I guess Tommy Lee is just a really fun character to play. Um, but I think this portrayal in the dirt is just a little bit better. Um, yeah. And yeah, the movie focuses mostly on uh, Nikki Six and the casting of Douglas Booth is great um, for him too. Um, what I really appreciate about The Dirt is that it's an authorized biopic with actual Motley Crue music in it, as yeah. we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and I think, uh, especially for a movie like this, you just, you really had to have those songs um and for for these guys because well because they're playing them and it's really kind of the soundtrack and it just it takes you through it was it was just a blast it's, it's really wild and fun and it really kind of puts you into that like i said sort of a rock and roll circus environment but it also goes into um vince neal's daughter's death and and yeah. of course um um nikki six's famous uh kickstart my heart uh uh you know inspiration to write that song when he yeah. overdosed so i mean it goes into the dark side as well yeah i it's uh i watched that the the night that it showed up on netflix i just i couldn't wait to see it i had read the book as well and i don't really read a lot of um, you know, music biographies uh, anymore i used to when i was like in high school and stuff but uh that one i read just because it's like you knew that that one was going to be completely off the wall and the 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 movie com just did such a great job of of the with the energy and everything about it it was just uh it, it felt as big as these guys were nuts and insane <laughs> yeah it did <laughs> <laughs> and they did a good job i think of you know even though it focuses more on certain band members i thought all the band members really got their due unlike say the runaways where you didn't really get to know 
Right. Yeah. There was a lot of really funny stuff with, uh, I, I'm really going to mess up the actor's name. Uh, Ewan Rion. He played Mick Mars. <laughs> yeah. Mick Mars, the grumpy old man of grumpy the Grumpy old man. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can relate to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there was just, everybody had their, their thing. It just, it wasn't, even though it really was the Nikki Six story, it did such a good job of, of including everybody. And, and a lot of uh, uh, little Easter eggs from that period with, uh, you know, David Lee Roth and all these guys kind of coming. Ozzy Osbourne snorting the ants up off the, yeah, off the ground. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, that was a fun, it was, it was a lot of fun, that thing. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah. Uh, and Love and Mercy. Now to take you out totally different. Yeah, <laughs> totally different. Here. Yeah, this yeah. one's a little bit of a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a <laughs> this was a, a 2014 movie uh, directed by Bill Pullen, and this is it's the life, love, and genius of Brian Wilson. And uh, Brian, it's, it's an interesting movie. Uh, quite good. Uh, Brian Wilson, of course, of the Beach Boys, uh, who is uh, an absolute genius, uh, was played by two actors in this as younger uh, Brian and older Brian. And younger Brian is uh, Paul Dano, you know, wonderful Paul Dano. He's great in everything. And older uh, Brian is played by John Cusack, who I think is one of probably the best performances he's given in a very long time. Uh, and I don't think he gets the opportunity to do a lot of um, movies like this anymore. It's a lot of, uh, I don't know, seemingly direct-to-video stuff. He was kind of in the Nicolas Cage land, but, you know, John, oh, yeah. John, John Cusack uh, was just one of my absolute favorite actors. And I go back and watch all of those movies from the 80s and, and early 90s, and I'm still John Cusack is one of my favorite actors. Uh, we, just, we just hadn't seen him really in a while um but it's it's really this is a it's kind of a fascinating movie um in that it's uh brian is such a such a mad genius tortured soul and uh, the his relationship with his family uh which we see through uh Paul Dano there and then all the way through Pet Sounds and the band and everything else and then we see um you know Brian now was played by Kuzak and it's just really um well it's not such a big switch in character at all it's just a progression of of an extremely tortured abused person and it, it's it's really kind of sad to watch um I ate through that same video store. I used to see Brian Wilson every single day. Really? He went to the deli that was right next door. That was the, the Beverly Glen deli. And he probably still does. Um, but with, without missing a day, he was, he was always there and he would show up park, go in to the deli, spend a couple hours and leave. And I had a, chance to speak with him many 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 times he was a very nice guy uh a friend of mine who worked at the deli uh really befriended him bo chung who has a uh, uh a great little band a local band called uh, tiny toy trains but he even toured with with brian for a while there were a lot of you know the the rich wealthy nouveau reach or whatever uh house moms that were up there spending money on nothing all the time and i remember one lady goes oh my gosh saw saw this guy walking across the parking lot and said uh i don't know how these homeless people find their way up here it was about like a three mile walk either direction straight up a hill and she thought brian wilson was the homeless guy that kind of wandered into the neighborhood i was like that guy is an absolute music genius she just had no clue who he was but wow. it was just kind of sad and I think very uh, indicative of, of who he was or who people perceived him to be and um, did you like this movie at all or 
Oh, I really did. I, I um, actually am, you know, I'm not a huge Beach Boys aficionado, but uh -huh. I certainly appreciate the genius of the band. Yeah, I mean, I thought that the scenes uh, showing his mania and his psychosis were very well done. Um, you know, how he really kind of went crazy in his session for lack of a better word I guess that's yeah. not politically correct now but with um the wrecking crew you know I thought that was very interesting how he kept having them do take after take after right. take after take and um you know I mean it's it's definitely a sign of his um burgeoning psychosis when he was younger and as it sort of uh, developed into something else and I also really thought that the uh portrayal uh, by Paul Giamatti as Dr. Eugene Landy, who had actually taken um, some kind of legal control over him, which was uh, as yeah. his custodian, I guess, was really, really interesting. And in that he did not want, um, want him to have, you know, a love life. And the, the second part of the movie focuses on how he met his wife and how she helped get him out of that that legal, the legally binding yeah. contract to his doctor. Um, you know, I think Paul Giamatti, he's just great as kind of those leechy characters. Yeah, in the he had a very, very unfortunate wig. Straight out of thing. Compton, too. Did you see him in that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's great. The scene where he walks into the, the car dealership and he meets who would be his future wife uh, and still uh, Melinda, uh, who was played by Elizabeth Banks. And that was just such a, kind of a crushing scene of of loneliness and knowing that you're not right in the head yeah and also that you're really, not free either you're not I mean, free you're yeah. not you're you don't know where you are and it's um i that scene really kind of got to me but that was it, very well done yeah and then uh yeah I, I think i mentioned it a minute ago but the you know, paul giamatti's wig in this thing is so, <laughs> yeah. so distracting <laughs> yeah i just i thought kuzak did such a great job and it wasn't really a, a parody or anything and i thought you know all of this it's it's a hard character to watch oh yeah there's a lot you of know? nuance in it for sure yeah there's just a it's just it's a it's a hard i mean even when i was seeing brian wilson every day not always talking with him but i would at least see him it, it was just it was a hard thing hard person to just look at um and I, I don't mean that in a wrong way but it's just you just know there's a, a life of kind of torture and all of these things uh that had happened um that led up to this and it's just like wow you know it's just genius uh, can be really difficult to live with one of the things I, I really liked about this movie was I thought, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I have a tin ear. I can't, I, I can't play anything. I don't know music. I just, I know what I like and I listen to over and over and over. But to me, that just seemed like one of the most realistic visions of being in a studio, you know, uh, creating the music. And I just I really kind of was lapping up that type of stuff where, you know, it's not always just, uh, magic when you go in there, even that you have all of these uh, wonderful people. And they did a lot of that in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, mm -hmm. where it was all kind of fun and experimental and everything worked. This one was just, it was agonizing for everybody. And you have one person who's really in charge telling all of these other people who are musical masters in their own right just doing the same thing over and over and over. Right. I, just, I just thought that was kind of a wonderful depiction of what it what it's like to be in the studio. Yeah, yeah, I like that little bit with Hal Blaine too from The Wrecking Crew. That was an interesting scene. Right, yeah. yeah. So now we move on from the musical genius and finesse of <laughs> the Beach Boys to the crazy uh, chaos <laughs> of the Sex Pistols. Uh, Sid and Nancy um 
the relationship uh, is between Sid Vicious, the bassist for the British punk group Sex Pistols, and his girlfriend Nancy Spungen. Um, so Gary Oldman is fantastic as Sid, and that was really like my first, um, I guess, you know, back in 1986 when this movie came out when I was a teenager, I really liked it and I watched it a few times and I just thought yeah. Gary Oldman was amazing. And I remember liking the movie a lot better than I actually do now. I don't feel like it's aged as well. I thought um, Chloe Webb was not really the best maybe choice to play Nancy. She's way over the top. I mean, not to say that the punk rockers back then were not way over the top, but yeah. she was just shrill. I don't know. I just really right. relate to I, her as a character. I, I found that uh, I didn't, I, I probably watched it 10, 15 times back in the day and I never thought that but then when I rewatched it uh two three weeks ago I'm like boy I really having a hard time with her so yeah something about it just didn't quite um yeah age as well I, I like the fantasy aspect of the movie sometimes they had a few interesting fantasy sequences yeah. like when he does um his uh, his cover of my way um, you know, I thought that was really well done. And of course the ending, um, spoiler alert, but you know, I thought that was pretty <laughs> touching, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just kind of a meandering. I didn't really get a sense of, of, a, an arc, a character arc. Of course, you know, it's, it's always hard to think back and realize that he was only 21 when he died, you know, right. so young. Yeah. 21 um, yeah. and the sex pistols are so interesting anyway because that was such a a short but bright burst i mean they only put out the one album mm -hmm. and i mean i'm painting my bathroom the last couple of days listening to uh marky ramon's punk station on sirius and the sex pistols are constantly on there but it's, you know it's those same songs that i really never get tired of but it's just it's odd to think they only did the one record and uh sid you know did my way and a couple other things but it was like there was just such a, a a blip in music history that was just explosive and became such a thing and inspired this movie but and and so many other things but it's um uh, goldman or Oldman rather, um, it's probably, I, th I think maybe the first time I ever saw him. I don't know. Uh, still fantastic. I was still just completely sucked in by him and his performance. Hers, I was eh, a little bit grating on me, uh, but it also made me, uh, because of Alex Cox, who I just, was always fantastic too, kind of made me want to watch Straight to Hell Again, which was another punk movie he made and and of course repo man which i haven't seen for you know three months so it's about <laughs> yeah you're due for another movie. viewing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one um, of the things i was thinking as i was watching the movie you know how everyone's apartment like the walls were all spray painted and everything and i thought yeah. well i guess no punk rockers ever got their apartment security deposit back when they moved. yeah <laughs> I was like, yeah exactly these people like really be allowed to live like that that was pretty yeah funny. yeah i felt that too uh, was kind of, I look at you know, being a, a homeowner now. I kind of I look at things like, oh, you, no, 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 you don't. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we're the, old, Shane. Yeah, the, the dirt really made me kind of. Oh, you can't just throw a TV out like that through the window. No. <laughs> Whereas uh, 20 years ago, I just thought that would be the coolest thing ever. Like that was a fantasy of mine throwing stuff. Out. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it did capture the punk. I think the punk spirit, but I didn't really feel did. a lot of. Um, I don't know, maybe not a lot of cultural context, although it did come out only 10 years after punk, really. So there wasn't a yeah, lot of perspective. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I, and Alex Cox is, I mean, is a punk. So writer and director, uh, he co-wrote it with uh, Abby Wool. To him, I just thought, that I think this was all just commonplace. You know, this wasn't a movie for the normals, you know? <laughs> right. So there wasn't really any context. Like if you knew, you knew, and if you don't, then screw you or whatever. But uh, the, the one thing, because I haven't seen one of these in a movie, movies in a while, and I, I do kind of avoid them. The one thing I, I just, I really can't take on film. And again, like I said, I, I you know, I'll watch 
cannibal movies for lunch, whatever, while I'm eating spaghetti. But I, I can't handle like hardcore drug scenes, shooting up or vomit. And there's it's a lot of vomit in this movie. And, and I sure. just, oh man, <laughs> too much. I've never been able to handle to handle that. And there's there's a lot of vomit in this thing. Vomit gets my my own kind of stomach churning and everything. But they, yeah, just the hardcore drug use is the, really makes me cringe. Makes me cringe more than anything. Yeah, and yeah. it's also yeah, it's a, it's a I'm sad a square, movie. You know, it's it like is sad. yeah. Who knows I mean, it's a tragic what these story. guys, you know, would have gone on to because everybody is Steve Jones, who's uh, a great guitarist and musician, uh, still around, and wish he was still on the radio. Um, had probably the best radio show I've heard in my entire life i love that jonesy's jukebox i discovered a lot of b-sides and really cool tracks from that show amazing um and it introduced me to music from my own period that i didn't really know or forgotten about but uh through that same video store i used to see steve jones all the time but uh he was very cool guy uh but you know, he's gone on to do a lot of other things. And, and Lydon, of course, who's such a curmudgeon. Uh, <laughs> he's quite a character. Yeah, he, he really <laughs> is. a couple of Q&As with him on stage. Oh, boy. Like, wow. <laughs> he definitely always has something to say about something. Yeah. Uh, but Public Image Limited was such a great band, too. And, just, you know, who knows where Sid Vicious, if he, if he would have become old enough to be i mean gosh even 25 it is a stroke of genius when you think about you know his decision to cover frank sinatra's yeah. my way and how he did it and um yeah i mean he really had a creatively you know fertile creative mind and i you know it's a, it's such a waste that he ended up the way he did and the fact it that is. you know there's it, the Chelsea Hotel I thought was also kind of another character in the film that was really portrayed well yeah 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 sad very sad yeah Don't well I drugs. think all yeah. these movies yeah I mean they all have a, a tragic aspect to them but yeah. um you know I think that that's a good uh, mix for us to have talked about. I mean, everything from the Beach Boys to uh, Norwegian death metal to punk yeah. to uh, glam me. rock that's in the 70s. Metal. I mean, yeah. So I think yeah. that's, we should wrap it up now. But we cover it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for. Next time is Coal Miner's Daughter. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a favorite too. <laughs> <laughs> and Bohemian Rhapsody, which you yeah. mentioned. Yeah. So there's a lot of really great uh, biopics about real rockers, but we kind of wanted to have a cross section of different bands yeah. here. So thank you for taking this journey with me, Shane. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate you. All right. Well, goodbye, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs> As always, before I close the show, I'm going to share a paragraph from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is an excerpt from the nonfiction edition and the chapter is Magical Mystery Tour. It seems LSD induced insanity was the downfall of quite a few rockers. Pink Floyd's Sid Barrett had more than a momentary lapse of reason when he went off the rails in the late 60s, tossing away a career that would eventually lead to the band's mega best-selling album, The Dark Side of the Moon, 1973. The guitarist's signature freeform style on the strings, which showcased dissonance, distortion, echo, and controlled feedback, have left a lasting mark on the face of acid rock, but he never got to fully enjoy his legacy. Roger Keith Sid Barrett was born on January 6, 1946, in Cambridge, England, and he died there, too, on July 7, 2006. What happened between that dash between the dates on his tombstone are times of glory, tumult, fugue, and sorrow. Sid was an artist, the kind that paints. His music career only lasted about a decade. In the late 1960s, he was fired from Pink Floyd for his erratic behavior, intense mood swings that went from mania to catatonia, 
and increasingly bizarre antics on stage. In later years, his contemporaries wondered if their friends suffered from schizophrenia, but back then mental illness was stigmatized and largely misunderstood. Concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B O O K S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time. Mm-hmm.